law, policy, and markets. Perception becomes reality along the way. And someone who perceives something really starts believing that's the reality. And when that happens, there's no good that's going to come out of that. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Mike Shaw, a partner in Millbank's Executive Compensation and Employee Benefits Group based in New York. Let's get to it. Executive compensation is a hot-button issue correlated both to tremendous growth in financial wealth and to rising inequality. Over the past 40 years, CEO pay at the top 350 companies has increased more than 17 times as much as the pay of the average worker at those companies, and has also outpaced the huge appreciation in equity values. Yet there is no question that value creation requires skilled management. Shareholders will always pay more for outsized performance. The key to designing and implementing effective executive pay packages is to align incentives by tying compensation to a company's long-term performance. That is easier said than done. Performance can be measured in line with Milton Friedman's classic doctrine of maximizing shareholder value, or increasingly with reference to other factors like environmental, social, or governance goals, or other stakeholder interests. Disclosure requirements and tax rules are designed to prevent excessive pay. One issue is, what is reasonable? But then, reasonable compared to what? What competing companies pay? Total or relative equity returns? Executive demands? It remains hard to distinguish skill from luck, to the extent that corporate performance may depend more on macroeconomic factors or sector trends than on management acumen, creativity, or leadership. From an economic perspective, it may be hard to measure the marginal productivity gain to a company that is attributable to an executive when their value or success depends on the teams they lead and on the combination of vision and mission that they are charged with. To prevent excessive risk-taking, corporate boards may introduce more downside risk into compensation packages, but not so much the companies have to pay executives a high premium to compensate them for pay volatility. I sat down this week with my partner, Mike Shaw, to discuss current trends in executive compensation and to learn how corporate boards are dealing with competing pressures and a volatile economy in structuring new pay packages that fairly incentivize top executives to deliver both value and growth. Mike, thanks very much for taking the time to get together. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Very good. So we're going to look at a number of executive compensation issues, probably in some more detail in a moment. But I, I wanted just to put this in a context for where we are today and really look at the impact of market volatility in 2020 on executive comp and on this mix between base and performance packages and everything else that's been going on. There's obviously with public company share prices bouncing up and down, down in you know, by almost 30% in the markets in March and then bringing back up, you know, by now and by the end of the summer. There's obviously impacts on the timing of granting stock options by companies of when employees or executives may choose to exercise their options and the impact also on performance metrics, uh, which otherwise might be tied to stock prices and how companies may be changing that. What's What do you see happening going forward in the next 12 months that might be different because of this volatility? 
Yeah, so so Alan, I mean, this is I, I've been doing this for twenty plus years, and and this year has been unlike no other with the global pandemic going on, and and so executive compensation this year has been a roller coaster, and and I think to better answer your question as to where we see this going in the next twelve months, I think it's probably important to kind of go back to March, April, May time period when when the world was falling apart, and there were there were lots of things going on, and the amount of calls that I got from boards and compensation committee asking what should we be doing because coincidentally, March is also the time when companies normally grant their equity awards. And uh, historically, companies would kind of look at the performance of prior years, look at their business plan for the next two to five years and set performance goals and grant equity awards. And with, with everything that was going on in the world, it just didn't make sense for a lot of companies to do that. And, and mainly because you know, there are companies that grant equity awards and other instruments based on sort of total direct compensation. And therefore, the equity portion is tied to a fixed value. So if I'm a CEO, in March, I would get equity grant with our benefits called grant date value, which is what the, what the value of the instrument is from accounting, from an intrinsic perspective. So if I'm a CEO, I would get a million dollars worth of options or restricted stock, and they would then invest over a period of time. Well, you know, when the stock price goes from 50 to 25, there's also always the fear that you're going to overpay that executive because the price that you're using isn't truly reflective of the market price. And so what, what happened back in March is lots of companies just decided that they were going to delay or if they granted it, figure out a way to sort of manage that on the back end. So we had clients that just decided that they weren't going to do the normal equity grant back in March and, and you know, waited until July of this year, July, early August, when things somewhat quieted down to make the equity grant. But even there, there was a bunch of trepidation because we started seeing the resurgence of, of COVID issues in, in other countries. So it, it's, it's, been, it's been sort of walking on eggshells, to be, to be completely candid. And I think what the companies are doing is, is they've kind of taken a, a more long-term view and condense it to, if you, had a, if you had an equity grant that was supposed to be through the five-year period, they've kind of said, look, let's, let's take a breather here. Let's do two to four years maybe, right? Or let's do a two-year program so that we're using, you know, equity is a very valuable instrument from a dilution perspective for the company. And the shareholders want to make sure that they, you're using that in the most efficient way. And so if you grant an equity that either doesn't balance that dilution perspective with a reward element to it, it's a useless instrument. So now you've got a dilutive instrument out there that's not really doing what it's supposed to do, which is to incentivize management. So lots of companies have kind of pulled back on their three to five year grants and made it sort of short of one to three year grants or two to four year grants in, in, in the hopes of you know, having these things settle in and then going back to the business plan. Because if you ask most boards, they don't really know what the business plan is anymore, unless you happen to be Zoom. But most companies, just retail, industrial, they just didn't know where they were going to be next year at this time. So that's my long way of saying that there's been a lot of movement. Lots of companies have kind of either condensed the performance goals by waiting to grant the awards when things are a little more stable. Others have sort of in, in their annual compensation taken a more discretionary approach which is to say, look, it used to be the performance goals were objective criteria, but we're now going to make them guidelines rather than sort of, you know, the rule. And, and the most important thing through all of this is most companies that have been successful at sort of managing this from a comp perspective have been very proactive with their employees 
acknowledging that, look, we know we have an issue and we've done things historically because we either don't want to get ahead of something or take an action that in hindsight would feel like it was the wrong act to take. Because as you know, if in three years, everything goes away, this is kind of what happened in 2008. The companies granted a bunch of stock options to executives after the financial crisis. And in two years, when the market came roaring back, the executives got outsized rewards and the shareholders kind of looked at it and said, well, why did you do that? Um, and, and so this, you know, this time it's a little different. Plus you have ISS and others that are, that also learned ISS, the is the Institutional Shareholder Services Group that advises companies on governance and compensation and other things. They put out guidelines relatively quickly saying, look, we understand what's going on. We're not deaf to it, but we also are very focused on making sure that, that companies don't take these opportunities or management don't take these opportunities to kind of get something that in hindsight isn't reflective of the true value that the company is trying to deliver. So is there a risk at times then that that becomes sort of a, an upside skewing way to approach compensation? Because you, you, obviously companies need to, com they're competing, right? They have to attract and retain and incentivize top talent, and they're all competing with each other. And in a lot of situations right now, it's not the company's fault that they're distressed. We're in a kind of an exogenous shock to the system in some sectors, as you mentioned, like retail or hospitality, aviation, maybe you know, disproportionately affected. But if, if executives are sort of shielded from the downside, effects of that in order to maintain that incentive, are, is their interest truly aligned with, with shareholders? Yeah, so look, it's a very important question, right? Because, you know, it depends on what side of the equation you're on, right? So as you know, we have a, we have a robust bankruptcy practice and, and we tend to represent lots of creditors, right? And, and so we have lots of exposure to management rationale when they're trying to put in and, and I, I'm going to shift to bankruptcy for a second because it kind of highlights the issue that you just raised. Take retail or airline, right? I mean, we, we've had clients that, are, that, that through no fault of their own, right, have, have been hit with a macroeconomic condition with the, when the, operationally the business was just fine, right? And, and, and so their response is, hey, we've done everything we can to kind of keep this company going. And it's not our fault that because of a macroeconomic condition, all of a sudden the stock price has gone down or we're not generating enough, enough cash to service our debt, right? And so we need to kind of restructure the balance sheet, but it's the true balance sheet restructuring, not an operational restructuring, right? It's not like the, company, the executives have sort of run that company down to the ground. So, you know, when you have a situation like that, even as, as stakeholders, creditors, you, you want to make sure that you're thoughtful about that approach. Obviously, there are always going to be some situations where, where people take advantage of that opportunity to sort of request things that just don't make sense, right? And, and so you have, you have tough conversations about that. But from my perspective, when, I, when, I, when we have a situation like that, I'm always thoughtful about advising our clients who are on the creditors saying, Look, there's a happy medium here, right? And in this day and age, when skill sets at, and, and talent levels are so transferable from industry to industry, you don't want to find a situation where your entire finance team or your legal team decides that I, I work for airline industry, which, which I don't see any visibility into. Let me jump to the tech side because it's, it's, it's proof from the COVID world, right? If that happens, you're, you're effectively digging a bigger hole. And, and this is always an emotional conversation. Cop is always an emotional conversation, right? With, with or without the pandemic. Because if you're the creditors, your response is, well, that's great, Mike, but I, I've got left holding my bag here. 
And the answer is yes, and it's a degree of what you want out of, out of that situation. If you kind of shoot yourself in the foot, it's not going to help you long term. And you no, know, the one other thing we always tell the clients is that you know, there are times when, although you may not like things that are being put in front of you, the replacement cost is twice as costly, right? Because you're dealing with management team that has been at the company, that understand the company, and they see the light. Whereas if you bring somebody, if, you know, take an example, your CFO leaves because he's able to go work for an industry that, that is pandemic proof, for example. To bring another CFO into that situation, that CFO is going to cost twice or three times as more because there's the cost of coming into an unknown. And, and so those are the type of conversations we have with our clients. And to answer your question, yes, is there a potential for that? Of course, right? Like hindsight's twenty twenty. What we try to do is have levers in place so that you at least get the target value out. And if there's a true outside performance, you know, the levers will bring you up and then you have a downside protection as well. So what you effectively what we've effectively done is if in, in the past you get hundred dollars if you hit eighty percent of budget, we expand the scope so we'll say you'll get sixty dollars at fifty percent and then on the high end. So we're expanding the length of the of, of the goals so that there is downside protection and it's not set up in a cliff so that it loses its value if you hit a bump in the road. Right. So as you're kind of adjusting the dial instead of turning the switch on and off. Correct. So you've mentioned a number of things which kind of behind the scenes are drivers for this split between let's call it base pay or salary and then everything else on top of that, which could be structured in any number of ways to create incentives and hopefully an alignment of both upside and downside risk between top executives and the companies that they're, that they're leading uh, or guiding. But I, I, there's other drivers there too, right? There's shareholder interest. You mentioned there's obviously compensation committees and people looking to ISS guidelines. For public companies, you may have large proxies or institutional investors to play a big role. I'm sure in private equity, you know, it's got a slightly different dynamic. How much of that split between performance-based or incentive-based pay and what we'll call relatively fixed or at least insulated from the volatility portion is driven by those sorts of management and shareholder concerns? And how much is driven by the tax code, say 162M limitations on deductibility for executive comp and things like that? Yeah, so look, 162M is gone, right? It is no longer applicable unless you're grandfathered. So that tax code provision is gone. So that, 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 that was part of the, the, the Jobs Act that was intended to sort of prevent companies from using that deduction. Right, at the end of 2017. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it probably made things a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Look, at the end of the day, what we tell clients and what I think the shareholders will tell comp committee chairs is structure your compensation program in a way that incentivizes the right behavior without regard to technical tax quota disclosure issues, right? Let's not hide the ball, right? Most shareholders will be more than happy to pay for outsized, pay for outsized performance. And so the tax codes are important, disclosure is important, but we tell compensation committees and the boards that disclosure can be managed in a way to articulate the story that you want to tell. It is your story to tell. So that shouldn't drive your ultimate decision as to what you think the compensation programs look like. In terms of the input from other external stakeholders, in the last two to five years, shareholder engagement has become a very important element of compensation program. And it's driven by, you know, partly say on pay and, and partly I think shareholders are, are much more focused on making sure that they have a seat at the table. 
So what, we, what we're seeing is a scenario where if a company has a situation where its, its pay has, has been outsized relative to performance, and, and if ISS has highlighted that, which it does, or other stakeholders have highlighted that, we're seeing a lot more compensation committees engaging with their stakeholders early on and asking them, look, what do you see as something that you would like to have incorporated into our program? Now, obviously, to be candid, each stakeholder has their own agenda and and what they're looking to accomplish, right? So there's a delicate balance that the compensation committee and the board needs to kind of take into account because ultimately they are the fiduciaries and, and sort of, you know, the overseers of the organization. And although some stakeholder may want you to take an action, that benefits him or her short term, you're, you're always looking to align long-term incentive creation value. So what we've seen and what we've encouraged compensation committee and boards to do is engage with your top 10 or 15 stakeholders. And they tend to be long-term thinkers anyway, and see if there's a common theme that is emerging as part of that conversation. And if it is emerging, then have your conversation with the management team and say, look, it's in no one's interest to be hostile or, or agitating to, the, to your owners. And, and so let's figure out a way that, that you can sort of balance that. Now, the one complicating factor is because comp is emotional, comp is a lightning rod, you've had stakeholders use compensation as a tool to make other governance changes which creates a very bad dynamic with management and the board, right? If there's a desire to get the board replaced, they'll use compensation because it's such a sexy thing to put out there and mainstream America sees it and they just see top line numbers, they don't see the dynamics. So again, most companies have sort of had that conversation and you can tell pretty quickly in those conversations, which conversations are truly comp driven, which are driven by ESG or other ideas that the shareholders may have that they want you to implement. But there's been a lot more in the last year to five years, external input in the compensation process than there has ever been. It used to be you, you had the management team come up with the annual budget and there were always, always complaints about those were sandbagging, right? The management was sandbagging those budgets and you'd end up hitting the targets every year and you'd get outsized pay, that has changed a lot. And, and uh, some of that is also because the SEC as part of their overhaul of the executive compensation almost 10 years ago now, required that the compensation committee lay out the rationale as to why they chose performance goals, what that is. So there's a lot more information now than there was a few years ago for even the shareholders to kind of have data points to have a meaningful conversation. So I want to come back to ESG in a minute, but just staying with that for a second, disclosure and shareholders, especially activist shareholders or shareholder groups that are interested in, in maybe non-quantitative metrics and ways to measure performance, whether it's ESG or anything else, all that's playing out in the arena for public companies and disclosure in particular and SEC rules really focusing on, uh, not entirely, but mostly on public companies. How is the dynamic different when a company that be a very large company is held privately, whether it's by private equity funds or by maybe foreign strategics or by venture capital, if it's you know a newer company. How, how is that dynamic different when you don't have that same sort of disclosure public market context? Well, you, look, I think a lot of private equity shops, and, and at least the bigger ones, are starting to, look, it, it will very much depend on, on what your ultimate exit goal is. 
if your ultimate exit goal is to the public markets, right, you're going to have a different approach to compensation program. But even that approach, Alan, doesn't really sort of manifest itself until closer to IPO or closer to the public markets. Before then, the shareholders, it, this is assuming that you're a private company, not a public company. Most private companies view is that, look, we own the company. We, we know what our three to five year goal plan is and we're gonna drive that behavior and nothing else. And so in that sense, it's pretty much you owning your own shop and doing what you think is, is important. One of the other interesting element of compensation is rather than having external pressure, you're starting to also see internal pressures, right? So you're gonna, you're starting to see a lot more employees kind of voicing their concerns about how the company is approaching certain social issues or other things. This generation of employees and executives are very much focused on driving that behavior and change. And with the town halls and other things these companies have, you'll have a bunch of employees that stand up and say, hey, why aren't we having more diverse board candidates, right? And, or why aren't we sort of dealing with the carbon capture issues and other things? So you'll, you'll see some of those things embedded in the private equity compensation program to the extent it is industry specific. But until you're going public and accessing, you, you, don't, you don't tend to focus on these things. You focus on their return. And, and rightfully so, right? You, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your stakeholders. And, and those stakeholders may only care about return on capital more than anything else. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I know in, in California, there's been some legal changes that allow companies to be focused on a fiduciary duty that's not just maximizing return or profit for shareholders. We've seen the Business Roundtable come out with new uh, statement on corporate purpose and, and changes in their governance guidelines that suggest that companies should take into account not just shareholder return, but also you know, the concerns of other stakeholders, whether they're customers or employees or suppliers or the community or the environment, it kind of builds and gets broader. And obviously ESG goals are becoming more important in attracting investment. Are these sorts of changes going to result in either legal changes to those fiduciary duties or market changes where companies will design compensation in ways that reinforce goals other than just return or profit? Yeah, so look, Alan, it's, it's a question that, that I've had plenty of discussions about. First of all, like non-competes, right? Courts don't enforce non-competes, marketplaces do, right? It's the same concept here, right? Any behavior from a public company isn't so much in, driven by legal consideration as it is by marketplace considerations, right? Now, to answer your question about ESG and other things, I'll go back to my first year of law school when I had a wonderful contracts professor, corporate corporation professor, who said corporations are creatures of state law for a reason. And the reason for that is if you, if you go back 40, 50, 60 years, these corporations were sort of the town, right? Everyone worked there. They provided medical benefits. They had schools. They, they were there to sort of service that community and the towns around it. And so there was a social contract, right? that we're gonna do right by this town. We're gonna, to, this is our town, right? This is where our employees live. This is where their kids go to school. We're not gonna pollute our rivers. We're not gonna do this, right? And there's a full circle to that, right? And, and, and the full circle to that is for a long period of time and starting in the late 80s with, with hostile takeovers and activism, right? People, corporations started focusing on shareholder return as their top line goal, as opposed to all the things that were important to why corporations existed in the first place, 
right? And, and there were reasons why states had very protective provisions relating to corporations, why you couldn't take a corporation over because it was the lifeline for those local communities. So if you look at it too, this is also a global marketplace. I'm, I'm kind of mindful of this idea that you have a social contract with a company in this local community. Now we have global companies and some of these ESG concerns are really global concerns, whether it's climate change or I'll say diversity and inclusion and, and, and social justice and other things. There are different styles of corporate governance, compensation, roles of employees in Europe, as Germany probably is the paramount example, compared to what we have evolved in the United States. Different roles with banks versus capital markets and the rest of it. How much of a difference does that make in the executive comp world when you're dealing with multinational clients, companies where they're you know trying to maybe have differential structures across different markets or maybe something more unified? I think you kind of break the world up into, or the world of executive compensation into sort of different buckets, right? You've got your top level management and their goals should be on a, on a macro level. And, and they should be incentivizing sort of behavior that cuts through the entire organization. And for them, right, ESG goals that are of the paramount importance may be diversity in succession planning, right? That, that you, should, you should be focusing on bringing up talent up the corporate ladder, that that's one element of ESG. Or that when you're thinking about exploring or mining in, in Australia, I know there was a big issue just now with the mine companies in Australia where the CEO got terminated. Yeah, with Rio Tinto. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and there was a big sort of outcry about that, right? So at that level, you, you have much more control over the future business model and where you're going to sort of, you know, drill for oil, for example, right? Do you leave Alaska alone, Alaska alone right? Because it's, it's a preserve and, and people care about that. Or are you mindful that if you're going to do that, do it in a way that you capture enough carbons to, to, to protect the environment. So at that level, it's that, right? So you're focused on what is your business plan and how does your business plan affect sort of the global, the, the countries in which you operate. So you mentioned a moment ago, a couple of times, it's an emotional issue when there's a negotiation of an executive comp package or I think pay just at any level in a company is, is an emotional issue. There's, there's a, it's personal and there's a lot at stake. And I know for you, you and me both as, as lawyers advising, you know, corporate or, or financial institutions, there is this one level where you analyze problems. It's very rigorous, very analytical, prepared. You've got the data. You can kind of look at both the, the probabilities of success and failure. But there's always a human dynamic. And the way that it, your world functions, I think you're, you're right. There is even probably more of a personal emotional stake that at least the executives and maybe others in the board uh, context also have. What's the most effective way you find to navigate through that to build consensus and get people to be satisfied with, re with the result kind of all around the table? I have two mantras that I, I teach young associates. We get paid to solve issues, not spot them. And second, 50% of our job is being a psychologist. Once you get past the formulaic design element, the next question is how do you sell it, right? And how do you sell it to management and how do you sell it to the board? I view myself as a gatekeeper in that process, right? We represent companies. Obviously we work with board and management both. And when we are tasked with that process, it's much easier to say, Alan's just being greedy. He wants all of this, right? Without actually having a conversation with Alan and understanding his perspective and then taking that perspective and explaining to him the board's perspective or vice versa, right? And there are lots of those conversations that I personally have with both the management team and the board. 
and it takes a while to get there to get that happy medium. I think you know the one thing I will tell management all the time is that look, I, I think explain the right way what you're trying to accomplish to the board, right? And and we can help in that. Most of these board members are, are, are prior executives. They've been to this dance before and they've seen all of this, right? And they were on the other side of this. So they know all the excuses. They know all the nonsense rationality that you may want to throw out there. And so I tell them, be candid with your board members. You need to be sensitive to the fact that in this day and age, being a public company board member carries a lot of burden with it, right? And a lot of personal reputational risk. And, and most board members want to do right by everyone. But if you don't understand their emotional element of this equation, right? No compensation committee chair wants to be called out for paying their CEO too much money because that effectively makes that compensation committee chair in the eyes of the public, non-independent. And individuals who serve at that function don't want to be viewed as being controlled by management or rubber stamping. So what we have found to be very successful is to at least start with understanding what the program is trying to achieve, both from a management and a board perspective, and then just being sort of a mediator, right, of, of ideas. We get hired, again, not to spot issues, but to bring our creativity, right, from other contexts and, and see if there's a way to sort of design a program at a particular client, take into account the various experiences you've had at other places. That's true. I think we're asked more often you know, what's the creative solution to this or what's market, right? What's the benchmark uh, than we are? What are the legal rules? I don't think the legal rules actually come up all that much in many of these negotiations. Yeah, look, at, at, our, at our level, I, you know, they, they already know what the legal rules are, right? They're looking for counselors, not lawyers at, 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 at some level. So if you go back to the psychology of this for a second too, you know, we all have cognitive biases. It's something I've talked about before and in other contexts. And this kind of overconfidence that we have, and I don't think that corporate executives or board directors are immune from being overconfident, They've, or at least confident, maybe, maybe appropriately so. But that does tend to mean that we're trying to align interests in compensation based on this idea that there's plenty to go around, we can be generous because we want to incentivize growing the pie, right, as opposed to a scarcity mentality where it's zero sum, it's I want to take what I can get while I can because the pie is, is static or shrinking. So. Obviously, I think that, that psychology probably plays a, a big role, that inherent optimism that most of the people in that, in that conversation probably have. I'll tell you, I've learned a long time ago, and I tell everyone, I, I represent management teams and executives on a very selected basis, just because I prefer to represent boards and, 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 and comp committees. But we, we do, we do, in, 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 under unique circumstances, we'll represent management teams and executives. And then more importantly, when we're having conversations with executives and management teams, when we're talking about annual compensation and long-term compensation. And you always reach that point in that discussion where you, you have that hard conversation, in, including, you know, this is true for me and you, we all think our value is a lot more than it's ever worth. You have to remind people that we're all replaceable as much as we don't think we are, we all are, and the world moves on. And there needs to be a understanding of that principle in order for anyone to truly sort of come to a place where they're happy with what they have. And, and so I've had those conversations and those are not fun conversation because it's a delicate conversation because the first reaction you always get is you're insulting my worth and that's not the point, right? I'm not at all insulting your worth. What I am telling you is that from a value proposition perspective, what you're asking 
someone else can also do that for that price point or someone can do it better than you at that price point. And especially when you're dealing with boards, they're former executives, former business people, right? Former owners of business. And they understand that. And, and you know, you'll constantly hear, hey, listen, if Alan can't do it, I mean, I, I think I'm overpaying Alan anyway. If Alan can't do it at that price point, I'm, I'm sure Mike can. And I've got, I, I know plenty of mics that can. And, and that, that's when I, I hate our conversation going to that level because that's when the trust falls apart. And a very important part of my practice is the trust and making sure there's always trust between management and the board. Uh, because at the end of the day, they, 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 they are aligned and they're the stewards of an organization that's not only tasked with shareholder value creation, but also tasked with you know, an organization that may be employing 10, 15, 20,000 people whose daily lives depend on decisions you're making at that level, right? And I remind people of that. What I've learned over the years is that most executives, again, once you get past the emotional perspective and, and you provide rationale reasons as to why things are happening, they're smart enough to pick that up and, and, and sort of find the happy medium. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're right. It does all come down to trust. Building trust. Somebody once said there's, there's a shortage of trust, but it's, it's actually something that I think can be created and the communication and that confidence building part of the negotiation is probably as important or more so than some of the substance of what's being discussed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, at, at the end of the day, I've seen negotiations break down in a 10, $15 million package over a half a million dollars. And, and that negotiation didn't break down because of the half a million dollar package. That negotiation broke down. The half a million issue was just an excuse to get out of the situation. And the reason that didn't go through is because at some point the trust and the communication kind of fell apart and and when that happens it's hard to sort of come back to it because once you go past the comp discussion which happens generally once a year you know there are the four board meetings and other things where you're seeing the same people and you're talking about operational and this experience will drive their view of you right their perception of you and i and, and i tell my 15 year old all the time perception becomes reality along the way and someone who perceives something really starts believing that's the reality and when that happens there's no good that's going to come out of that well it's true it's kind of it's interesting because this legal and also cultural aspect to contract negotiations the legal part is well we're going to get together and negotiate rules which will govern our relationship but the more cultural interpersonal one is we will get together and negotiate and we will know we've reached a level of trust where we want to do business together precisely when we get to the point where we're ready to sign. Like the signing is not to lock in the rules as much as it is to evidence that we trust each other. Absolutely. And there are always hot button issues and, and we're all creatures of our experiences. And there have been situations when I've represented boards and compensation committees negotiating with an executive and the executive council will come to me and say, Mike, you know, that's completely off market, right? Why do you have a cause definition? that includes X, Y, and Z, right? And, and you know, the hashtag me too provision, right? And my response, and, and he'll say, it's off market, you know that. And my answer is, you're absolutely right, it's off market. But having said that, this board has gone through a world of pain in the last 12 to 15 months in a particular issue that they have vowed never ever to go through again. And I am sure Joe is a stand-up person or Jill is a stand-up, woman, right, that will never have those issues. But this is a topic that is so important to them, right, that they will not move off of it. And they may move off it three years from now, once they trust you, 
but they've just gotten burnt with it, right? And so that's the trust element where the executive needs to understand where they're coming from. And there are plenty of examples on the other side where the executive will say, you know, I absolutely need this. I need, I, I need this medical benefits for this period of time. And I'll say to him or her, well, that's not what we do. If I'm representing executives, I'll say, well, that's, we need this because their personal elements of the wife may be sick or the child may be sick that they need medical care. And this individual isn't going to leave this job unless that's given to them because that's that important to them. Money can't replace that. And I think that to your point about communications and understanding the explanation of what you're trying to look for beyond economics will be the most important thing in any of these negotiations. Yeah, I fully agree. Mike, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're busy and I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.